Let's, let's go to John 10. Uh, verses 22 through 42 is what we're looking at today. And what we're looking at now is we're looking at um, the conclusion of a really important uh, a period within Jesus' earthly ministry. What, what we look at today is the conclusion of Jesus' uh, traveling, teaching ministry. All right, for, for chapters and chapters now, he's been walking around and he's been telling people about who he is and he's been proclaiming the coming kingdom of God. And uh, this marks, to, to the best of my understanding, this marks the end of Jesus' teaching, traveling ministry. From this point on in the book of John, uh, as Jesus teaches, he's going to be doing that directly with his followers, with his disciples. Okay, uh, That and the Passion Week. We'll get into that too a little bit later. Um, so what he does then, in, in this part of our story then, as he wraps up his teaching, you know, traveling ministry, he, he sort of sums up his message over the last nine chapters. He kind of sums it up, and then he puts like a big exclamation point on the end, is, is kind of what he does here. And you'll, you'll see how he does that. What he does, uh, among other things, is he addresses the three most fundamental, critical questions that every person on the planet asks. Jesus addresses here in these 20 verses the three most fundamental questions that every person on the planet, I don't care what country you live in, what faith system, what background you have, every person asks these three questions at some point in their life. Number one, they ask, who's going to save us? Who is going to save us? Because again, I don't care where you are, where you're everybody knows something has gone wrong. Now, everybody's got different answers to what, you know, that, the, 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 you know, what, where, that should lead us to. But every person, you look around, you say, something is not right. You look around, you look in your heart, something has gone terribly wrong. Who is going to make all things new? Who is going to make all things right? Or what is going to make all things right? Who will save us? Secondly, the question he answers is, how, does it, 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 how are we supposed to live today? How am I supposed to live today? Um, how am I supposed to uh, walk? Uh, what are my steps supposed to look like? And then the third, he says, uh, what is our hope for tomorrow? So who's going to save us? How do I live today? What's my hope for tomorrow? So let's do this. Let's just... Dive in, let's read the passage, uh, and then we'll look at each of these questions in turn. John chapter 10, verses 22. At that time, the feast of dedication took place at Jerusalem. It was winter, and Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, but you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. The Jews picked up stones again to stone him. Jesus answered them, I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you going to stone me? The Jews answered him, It's not for a good work that we're going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you, being a man, make yourself God. Jesus answered them, Is it not written in your law, I said you are gods? If he called them gods to whom the word of God came, and scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him whom the Father consecrated and sent into the world, You're blaspheming, because I said I'm the Son of God. If I'm not doing the works of my Father, then don't believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. Again, they sought to arrest him, but he escaped from their hands. He went away again across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing at first, and there he remained. And many came to him, and they said, 
John did no sign, but everything that John said about this man was true, and many believed in him there. Let's pray. Father, again, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the opportunity we have to be here together uh, as a family to uh, just open your scriptures and to um, study them and to meditate on them and to talk about them and, and apply them. And we pray um, by the power of the Holy Spirit uh, that we would, um, again, our hearts would be open to what you have to share with us. You'd build us up, help us to be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ by the power of the Holy, Sp- Holy Spirit through your word. I pray, Spirit, move today. I pray, God, that you would speak through me. I pray that you'd speak to each one of our hearts, mine included. And, and again, Lord, that you would help refine us and shape us, um, give us understanding, give us insight, and give us the power to apply what we learned today. We love you and we thank you for this time. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Again, Jesus answers three fundamental questions. There's, there's a whole lot in that passage, isn't there? We, we could spend a lot of time on that passage, um, but for our, we've got 21 chapters to get through, um, and this is week 30. I don't know how long, long you guys are going to be patient with us going through John, so <laughs> we're going we're gonna to cover these 20 verses. Um, so here's what I'm going to pull out. I want to pull out three fundamental questions here. First, again, who is going to save us? Who's going to save us? We all need a Savior. Every person is looking for a Savior. Every person is looking for a Messiah, right? That, that anointed king, that conquering king, that saving king, the one that's going to, you know, uh, cover over all of the wrong in your life, all the injustices that have come to you, cover all, all of the wrong, all the injustices that you've performed. Who is going to be your Savior? What is going to justify you as a person? What is going to give you meaning and purpose? What gives you value? Here's the question, because we all have it. What, what are you... Leaning on, leaning so much of your weight on today that if I were to come to you and I were to yank that out from underneath you, that your whole life would come crumbling down, never to be put back together again. Okay, that, that's the question. Whatever that thing is that you're leaning on, whatever that might be jobs, careers, uh, you know, spouses, kids, money, uh, whatever that might be, that is the thing that you are looking to as your Savior. For some of us in here, for many of us here, because I know most of you are going to see the fruit in your life, for many of us in here, that Savior is Jesus, right? We, we, we've, we've tried the things of this world, haven't we? Uh, we've seen jobs, careers come and go. Um, our, our spouses fall short. Not mine, of course, but most people's spouses. Now, our, our spouses make lousy messiahs, don't they? Um, sex does not deliver, even though it promises to. It does not deliver. Uh, Money does not bring that peace and that joy and that contentment that every single one of us needs and is longing for. We've tried the things of the world and we found them wanting. But then we found Jesus. And and like the hymn writer said, in him we found pleasures forevermore. Right? He is is mighty to save. But again, most of us in here, that's that's the case. We've we've placed our our, our faith in Jesus. We trust him as our Savior. But I I guarantee in a room of this size, there there are still some here, even if you've been coming to this church for years now, you're still looking, you're still searching for that Messiah. And this is the case uh, for these uh, Jewish listeners here with Jesus, these Jewish folks in our story. They were waiting for this Messiah who was to come, who was to give them freedom. But what we see here, just in so many other places in the Gospels, they are looking in all of the wrong places. And, And we can see that from the first few verses. Look at these again. Verse 22. 
John writes, At that time, the feast of dedication took place at Jerusalem. It was winter, and Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, then tell us plainly. Okay, so we've seen as we've studied John, John doesn't typically give us a lot of meaningless detail. He doesn't give us detail willy-nilly. There's a reason why this is here. So he gives us the context, and I think it's important that we recognize it. He says, at that time, the Feast of Dedication took place in Jerusalem. What in the world is the Feast of Dedication? I'll tell you because I read up on it this week. And it'd be a shame to waste my study. Uh, here's, the, here's what the Feast of Dedication was all about. There was a guy back in 2nd century B.C. Well, back up. There's a, a, a king of Syria named uh, uh, Antiochus. Right, who was ruling over um, uh, uh, much of uh, quite a bit of land, but but the the uh, Judah in in particular. Okay, Antiochus. I read this week was really into himself, and he actually gave himself a last name. He called himself Antiochus Epiphanes. All right, Antiochus the Great One. That's what he called himself. Pretty humble guy. The Jews who were under his rule did not agree with that name, and so they switched some of the lettering around behind his back, and they called him Antiochus Epimenes, which means Antiochus the Madman. All right, and that's and that's, that's actually a fitting title. Antiochus um, was was really into things of the Greeks. He was really into Greek culture and thought and life, and that's partly because, as you remember from your history books, Alexander the Great, you know, a century and a half earlier, had come through and had conquered much of the land, and wherever Alexander went and conquered, he was really, really aggressive and intentional at, at injecting Greek thought, Greek culture, Greek religion, Greek philosophy, Greek art, okay? He, he was trying to transform the worlds that he conquered, and so even, you know, after he died, uh, this continued on. Uh, Greek thought pervaded much of that area, and so Antiochus had been exposed to a lot of Greek life, and he loved it. And so he had this dream where he wanted to transform his kingdom, including Palestine, uh, in, in, you know, from what it was you know, with its roots in the, in the Jewish you know, uh, faith to something that you know, they worshipped the Greek pantheon of gods, you know, embraced Greek philosophy and art and all that. So Antiochus, and I won't go into how he does it, but you know, he did it diplomatically, at least at first. Um, he tried you know, adding some extra holidays you know, in Palestine and kind of twisting some things around. The Jews wanted nothing to do with it. They didn't want to uh, you know, worship this Greek pantheon of gods. And so Antiochus basically in 170 BC uh, got frustrated through diplomacy out the window, raised up an army, marched into Jerusalem, and killed thousands and thousands and thousands of Jews enslaved a whole bunch more, marched into the temple. Again, his goal was he wanted to remove the worship of the God of the Old Testament once and for all and, and, and put you know, the Greek gods in, their, in his place. So he marches into the temple. He takes out anything of value. He, he desecrates the place. He, makes it, he turns it into a den for prostitutes. He, he takes the altar uh, uh, for a burnt offering to God and he, he makes it an altar for Zeus. All right. uh, he comes in, he, he's, he wants to, again, rid the worship of God, and so he makes it a capital offense to uh, own a copy of the Old Testament. All right. It's a capital offense for mothers to circumcise their children uh, because they knew that was a mark of Judaism. And so if anybody was found circumcising their child, they would crucify the mother all right, um, and kill the kids. Sorry to be so graphic. Um, it, so you can understand, Antiochus the Madman. It, it makes sense. It's a fitting title, isn't it? Okay. He... he, he this didn't last for very long, because after a couple of years, there's a guy named Judas Maccabee, uh, or Maccabeus, Judas Maccabee, who, who uh, 
was, was sick of this oppression, and so he took some of his, you know, rallied some of his uncles and his brothers together and different family members and friends, and they went off in a hillside and they trained, and then they, they formed this little army, kind of William Wallace-esque, right? And they, they formed this army in guerrilla style. They kind of went in and started uh, attacking Antiochus and his forces, and, and eventually, within a matter of time, he, they, they rid Jerusalem of Antiochus and his forces once and for all. Okay, they captured the city back, and there was this massive celebration, right? Uh, this big party raging, and they, and they rededicated the temple, right? They, they, and, and, and as they're rededicating it, Judah stands up amid this big party, and he says, you know, we need to have a celebration every year on this day. We need to celebrate, uh, you know, the, the, the rededicating of the temple, the, the, um, the purifying of our religion again, and we'll call it the Feast of Dedication. And this, this is what, and by the way, they still celebrate it today. It's called Hanukkah. Okay, this is, it's, it's, that's the Feast of Dedication. Um, lost my place here. So every year, they would do this. They, the Jews, would, they would eat and they would celebrate what God did through this hero of theirs, this Judas Maccabee. Judas Maccabee turned into almost a, a Messiah figure for the Jews. Because here was a guy, Judas was a guy who threw off foreign oppression, he, he gained independence for Jerusalem. He purified their religion, their religion. He ushered in this season of peace. Judas was a hero. And this is the kind of Messiah that the Jews were looking for Jesus to be. Okay, so John tells us in verse 22, it's the feast of dedication. The party's raging. Everybody's remembering what their little mini Messiah Judas did. And then they see Jesus in the temple and he's walking under the colonnade and they, they run to him and they surround him and say, Jesus! This day is perfect. Round two, right? This is the perfect day. It's the Feast of Dedication. Are you the Messiah? Because if so, let's get at it. Don't leave us hanging anymore. Just come out with it. If you're the one, just tell us plainly. They want Jesus to, to raise up this army, strap on a sword, you know, lead the charge against the Roman oppression. They want a Maccabee. But we've seen in the Gospels, Jesus tells him over and over and over, you've got it twisted. This, my mission is far greater than your little schemes. The, these Jews were so focused on the things of this world and their own agendas that they were missing him. Their, their stubbornness and their ambition and their pride and their self-righteousness was, was clouding their vision and stopping them from seeing Jesus, the Messiah, when he was standing right in front of their face. Remember John 9, Jesus says, because you guys think you can see, you, you're so blind. It's because you think you see that you are blind. Jesus was not going to be the next Maccabee, and he made that clear. Um, now, don't get me wrong. Judas Maccabee did a a great thing, a tremendous thing. We're not bagging on uh, Judas here. Judas is a, is a hero. He did them some things that are worth celebrating. All right, Feast of Dedication is a great thing. It's great that they continue to celebrate Hanukkah. But look, a hundred years after Judas Maccabee, uh, uh, you know, freed Jerusalem from this Roman oppression, guess what? Pompey and the Romans come marching in and take over the city back over, and once again, they're living under foreign oppression. Pompey comes back in and undoes all that Judas does, okay? Judas did some good things, even some great things, but he's a lousy Messiah. And it's going to be the same thing for us, can't it? We can have lots of good things in our life, even great things. Our marriage is a great thing. We said it before, our, our spouses are great things to be celebrated, to be reveled in. But if our spouses become what justify us as a human, if they, they make us whole, they will fail 
And we cannot put that kind of pressure on them. Spouses make lousy messiahs. Your kids make lousy messiahs. It's not fair for us to look to our kids' accomplishments to justify us as a people. Our kids cannot make us whole. We cannot put that kind of pressure on them. They're great gifts, lousy messiahs. Anything that we place our faith in apart from Jesus Christ will eventually fade away, will eventually come crumbling down, will eventually let us down. Jesus alone is mighty to save. Let's look at Jesus' response here. They say, how long will you keep us in suspense, Jesus? If you are the Christ, then tell us plainly. And Jesus answered them, I told you and you don't believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, but you do not believe because you're not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. All right, Jesus says, I have told you plainly. I, I, I mean, we've, we've read it oh, time and time again. I, I'm the bread of heaven, he says. I'm the light of the world. I'm the fountain of life. I am the living water. I am the judge of the world. He, Jesus actually says, at one day, when, at the resurrection, everybody is going to stand before me as I sit on my throne. I'm going to judge everybody according to how they respond to me. Jesus says this to them. Jesus says, you know, I, I am the good shepherd. Uh, you are all sheep, and I'm the shepherd. I, I, I am the door. Anyone who enters by me will be saved. I am the way, the truth, and the life. Nobody comes to the Father except through me. He says, before Abraham was, I am. And then, the, then these, these Jews come and say, so tell us, who are you? Can, can you imagine the frustration? I mean, Jesus been like, you're kidding me. I've been saying it. I've been telling you plainly every which way I can think of. It's not that Jesus' statements were obscure or insufficient. For the, for the Jews there, to, as it is with so many of us today, so many people today, lack of faith in Jesus is not primarily a problem of knowledge, it's a problem of pride. Lack of faith in Jesus is not primarily a, a problem, you know, lack of knowledge. It's a problem of pride. To see and experience Jesus as the Messiah, he tells us what we must do. He says it in verse 27. I think you saw it. Verse 27, this is what he said. We, we must approach Jesus as a sheep to a shepherd. We must approach Jesus as sheep to a shepherd. We must acknowledge our sheepness and his shepherdness. Um, we talked about this a lot last week, so I won't get into it much. But basically, do you guys remember, what, what does it mean when Jesus calls us a sheep? It means, uh, among, on one, one hand, we're, we're helpless, right? We're powerless, um, defenseless. It means uh, we can't protect ourselves. It means we're prone to wander. Remember, we talked about how a good shepherd, when he leads his flock out into pasture to eat and stuff, that he should go up to some, a higher elevation so that he can maintain line of sight at all times with the sheep. He's got to watch his sheep every minute of every day because, um, not just because, you know, somebody's going to come in and attack the sheep, although that's, that's a possibility, but because sheep will just wander away. Uh, they're a little dim-witted. They'll just wander off. They're prone to wander. And then what will happen is, you know, they'll get stuck in a thicket somewhere or, you know, they'll eat some poisonous plants because sheep don't know, what, doesn't know, you know, don't know what's good for them, right? They'll just eat something that'll kill them, all right? So the shepherd's got to watch what he's eating and, a, and the shepherd has to watch to make sure that the, the sheep doesn't flip over on its back and get stuck there because they can't figure out how to turn themselves back over, right? They'll just lay there and die. So on one hand, Jesus says, you know, you need me every bit as much as a sheep needs a, sh a shepherd. We are helpless. Jesus tells us we have to humble ourselves and come in utter dependence upon Jesus, our shepherd. All right? 
That's on one hand. But on the other hand, we learn that the, that, uh, the sheep are the treasure of the shepherd. That the sheep are valuable to the shepherd. This, this blows me away. This is why it was not uncommon for the shepherd to leave the 99 and to go look for the one because each and every sheep was so immensely valuable to put, it, you know, put the sheep on the shoulder and they'll come back home celebrating. They'll throw a party with their friends. I found my one sheep that I was missing because the sheep was so valuable. The Bible says that the, Bible says that the Lord's portion is his people, that, that, that we are his um, treasure and his inheritance. That's mind-blowing to think about. There's no greater statement about the value and the dignity of humanity than what Jesus tells us here in chapter 10. He says, yes, you are weak, you are fragile, you are helpless, you are defenseless, you are prone to wander, you're a bit dim-witted, but I love you and I value you so much so that I am going to lay down my life so that I can spend eternity with you and you can spend eternity with me. That, that's the good news. That's, that's the good news of the Christian faith. That's what it's all about. You are helpless. I love you so much. I'm going to help you. I want to spend eternity with you. Jesus is our Messiah. He is the one who is mighty to save. But friends, we must come to him. The only way we can come to him is as sheep to a shepherd. We must come in humility. We have to learn a lesson from the story we're reading today. We cannot be like the Jewish leaders who basically demand Jesus to submit to them. They basically come and say, Jesus, you need to be what we expect you to be. Uh, we, we need you to, to submit to our notions, our agendas. But Jesus called them into submission, and they picked up stones. They rejected him. Friends, Jesus is going to challenge our thinking too. He's going to reject some of our notions and some of our agendas and our plans, and that leaves us with a choice. We can submit to him as sheep to a shepherd, or we can wait for him to submit to us. Have you ever said, God, thy will be done? Understanding that when Jesus said that, it meant his death. Have you ever said, God, thy will be done? Or are you still waiting for Jesus to say that to you? Philip, okay, thy will be done. Don't hold your breath. Have you ever said, God, thy will be done? He's going to challenge us. Um, I, I read... I don't remember where I read it, I, 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 but it stuck with me. Um, so I, I put it up here. I read somebody say this. I think there's a lot of truth to this statement. If the God you are worshiping never disagrees with you, then the God that you're worshiping is an idealized version of yourself. If the God that you are worshiping never disagrees with you, then the God that you are worshiping is an idealized version of yourself. We must come to Jesus as sheep to a shepherd, dependent humble, submitting ourselves to him, or we'll miss him. Second, Jesus tells us how we are to live today. Um, he, he tucks this in, in, right in here in verse 35. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read to you a little bit earlier so we can see the context. Verse 32, Jesus answered them, I've shown you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you going to stone me? And the Jews answered him, it's not for a good work that we're going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you, being a man, make yourself God. Jesus answered them, is it not written in your law? I said, you are gods. If he called them gods to whom the word of God came and scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him whom the father consecrated and sent into the world, you are blaspheming because I said, I am the son of God. Anybody else confused on that one? 
Okay, for years reading this, I get this part, I'm like, what in the world is he talking about? Um, here we are. <laughs> Psalm 82. This is what Jesus is quoting. Psalm 82. Jesus, or the, the psalmist Asaph, he writes, he says, I said, you are gods, sons of the Most High, all of you. Nevertheless, like men, you shall die and fall like any prince. Okay, this is the, this is the passage that Jesus is quoting. Now listen, this psalmist, Asaph, he's referring to the judges of Israel. Okay, this, this divine council that God set up. It's like a supreme court. And, and they were to act on God's behalf. They were like God's agents over the nation of Israel. They were to, to show God's mercy. They were to show God's justice. They were to display God's character as they ruled over, you know, this theocracy, right? God's nation. Okay, they were God's agents set in place. But actually, if you read through Psalm 82, which we're not going to do, but if you read through it, what you'll find is that the whole psalm is basically saying, you guys stink at this job. I mean, you guys are terrible. Like, you're perverting justice. Where is the mercy? Where is my character shown to the people? You are failing. Um, and so then you've got Jesus who walks on the scene and, and, and says this to these Jews. He says, if they called them gods, like agents of God, some, some translations actually put it in quotes, if they called them gods, right? Um, these weak and fragile mortal men who are constantly perverting justice, what, what, what else could you say about me? He, he, says, he says, I represent God perfectly. That's why he you know, calls attention to his works. He says, look at my teaching. Look at, look at what I do. Look at what I say. Look at my power. Look at my life. Look at my holiness. The writer of Hebrews says that Jesus is the radiance of God's glory in the exact representation of his being. Okay, He's saying if, if they call them God's agents, God's, God-like, what else could you say about me? I'm one with the Father. I'm unified with the Father. I'm set apart by the Father. And he actually talks about, you know, existing with God the Father before and then being sent into the world. So it's, all an, it's an interesting statement. Anybody more confused than we were five minutes ago? Hopefully I got, okay. We can talk about it more. Here, what I want to talk about that. Here's what I want to talk about. There's a little phrase, four words uh, I want, that I want to that I want to address because this is the key to life today. This is the key specifically to the Christian life for the Christ follower. If you are a Christ follower in here, please listen. This is what he says. It's actually a little aside. It's like in parentheses. He he breaks it apart by dashes. He says, "Scripture cannot be broken." That's what he says. Scripture cannot be broken. This is the key to the Christian life. If you are a Christ follower in here, um, please listen. Jesus said that you can know you are a sheep. If you hear his voice and you follow him. That's what he said earlier on in the passage. If if you are a sheep, uh, then you should be able to hear his voice and you follow him. Are you following him here? Do you have the same attitude towards the scriptures that Jesus does? He said, scripture cannot be broken. What does that mean? Well, the word that Jesus uses here for broken means something that is not true. Something not true. In other words, a broken word is a false word. So when you say, you know, hey, you broke your promise, what you're saying is, um, you know, your, your words are false, right? You said you do this, you didn't do this, their words were not true, they are untrustworthy, they're false. So Jesus says, Scripture cannot be broken, that we think Scripture cannot be false. Scripture is true. It's entirely true. Nothing that it teaches or affirms is untrue or untrustworthy. This is Jesus's perspective on the scriptures. It cannot be broken. They cannot be false. They are true. Um, And this isn't a popular idea today, is it? 
even in, even in the, the, the church world, the Christian world, um, we have many, many, many people who say, well, I go to church. Yeah, I, I, I believe in Jesus. I, I, uh, you know, I even would say he's, he's God in the flesh. I've, I've placed my faith in him, and I can you know, accept all of his teachings, but ah, that one, I don't know about that. I don't know if I can, I don't know if I can believe that part. All of the scripture's true. What about the things that don't, don't mesh well with our culture? What, what about the things that seem so outdated, right? There's, what about the things that don't make any sense at all? The scriptures cannot be false, he says. It's entirely true. It's true. It's trustworthy. Um, but in addition, when Jesus says scripture cannot be broken, he not only is saying that it's true, but it's also something that we must obey. He says we are not to break God's law. Scripture cannot be broken. What's interesting here is that when Jesus quotes Psalm 82, um, he actually says, he says, Is it not written in your law, I have said you are God's? Why does Jesus talk about the Psalms as if they're law? You ever thought about that? So we all know that the, the, the first five books of the Old Testament, that's the law. And then you've got the history books, and then you've got the writings, which, by the way, is where the Psalms fit in. And then you've got the prophets. That's how the Old Testament canon is broke up. You've got the law, the history, the writings, and the prophets. Jesus, though, says, is it not written in your law, I have said you are God's. And he's quoting the Psalms. Why would he do that? I think it's his way of showing us that no matter what you read in the Bible, this is his perspective on the scriptures, no matter what you, you know, read in the Bible from beginning to end, Genesis to Revelation, it's not only something that you are to believe is true, but it's also something to be obeyed. It's not only something that you believe to be true, it's also something that is meant to be obeyed. So let me ask, Christ followers, as a follower of Jesus, do you have the same attitude towards the scriptures that Jesus does? This is how we are to live, in submission to the true and the final authority of God found in the scriptures. Jesus himself said, man does not live on breath alone, but by what? Every word. Every word that comes from the mouth of God, even the ones that are hard, even the ones that uh, don't make sense. And can I say this just as an aside? Um, it's not in here, but can I say this just as an aside? Um, every one of us would say, um, you know, um, even for those of us who ascribe to this, would say, I'm trying. You know, I'm nowhere near where I should be. I'm trying. I'm giving it a go. I don't want you guys to feel, you know, just bogged down here, oppressed here as we're talking. Um, can I tell you why I think that I struggle to obey the scriptures? A lot of people say, well, it's because they're so hard. They're so hard to do. It's beyond me to, to do it, right? The scriptures are so demanding. They're so difficult. I don't actually know if that's the reason why, for me personally, that's why I struggle so much. You know what it comes down to? Is I don't believe the promises that are associated with obedience, I, often, I oftentimes, you know, there's all kinds of promises that are, that are associated with the commands of God, the obedience to the commands of God, like, blessed is the man who walks in the law of the Lord, right? How can a man keep his way pure? By living according to your word, right? All, all kinds of, he says, you, you know, if you would continue in my word, the truth will set you free, right? Freedom, purity, blessedness. Paul says, you know, the, the, the scriptures do not only make us wise for salvation, but equip us for every good work. This, the obedience to the scriptures can make us holy, Right? All of these great promises associated with obedience to the scriptures. My problem is I just don't believe them most of the time. You know, I think, well, I just don't know if it's really going to come through. I'm going to find pleasures elsewhere. I'm going to go run after this because this will make me happy now. 
Is, is, anybody relate with that? Am I the only one? It's kind of bearing my soul here. Okay. <laughs> um, and again, what it comes down to is, do you trust God? That he's going to come through with what he says. Do, do you trust that, that, what he, that the, the commands that he lays before us are not meant to be a burden upon us, but to bring us joy? He knows how life works best. He created it. And so when we obey him, we, we trust that he knows what's best for us. He's doing this for our good and for our joy and for his glory. Um, I was telling my wife, I read a, and I read a quote by... Uh, I'm going to apologize right now for saying this. I'm just going to apologize now for saying it before I even say it, but I'm going to say it. Um, I read a, uh, a statement by Martin Luther uh, this last week, and I'm probably going to butcher it. Um, but he said, if God asked me to eat the dung from off of the streets, not only would I eat it, but I would know what's good for me. If God asked me to eat dung from off of the streets, not only would I eat it, would I be out on the street eating it, but I would know that it's good for me. <laughs> the commands that seem so confusing and so appalling because of who God is, you can be confident that it's for your health and for your good. It's for, it's for your joy. That's, that's the God that we serve. Sorry. <laughs> Lastly, what is our hope for tomorrow? What is our hope for tomorrow? Verse 28. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. That's what Jesus says. I will give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. Judas Maccabee, their little mini Messiah, gave the Jews a hundred years of freedom. Jesus just said, I offer you eternity. You want me to be Judas? I don't offer you a hundred years before somebody comes in and takes over. I'm offering you eternity. Uh, Judas uh, Maccabee died in battle, actually. He, he, Judas Maccabee died. His, his followers died. Jesus says, you will never perish. I will make it so that you will never perish. I will, I will remove the sting of death once and for all. Judas Maccabee helped, helped Jerusalem to experience a hundred years until Rome came, you know, uh, came and, and Pompey came, came and snatched it right back out, of, out from under them. He snatched their independence. He snatched their freedom back from them. Jesus says, if you belong to me, if you were one of my sheep, no one will ever, ever snatch you out of my hand. That's our hope we have for tomorrow. He offers us not just life with him today, but life on into eternity I read this great quote. John Piper said this about um, the eternity that awaits uh, the sheep, the, the Christ follower. He says this. He said, If the thought of unending life for trillions and trillions of years is oppressive to you because of the threat of boredom, remember this. Though it is not fully comprehensible to us, an infinite God is infinitely inexhaustible in the treasures of power and wisdom and love and beauty which we can spend an eternity discovering and enjoying and applying to our daily life on the new earth. We will never sit down like Alexander the Great and weep that there are no more worlds to conquer. Our joyous quest to attain the heights of God's wisdom and love will never be ended. When, after a million years, we pull ourselves with unspeakable exhilaration over a massive peak of some glorious divine truth, we will be utterly astonished to find ourselves not at the top, but merely in the foothills. And before us, as far as the eye can see, mountains and valleys and forests and heights and light that we could have never imagined. Amen? That's the hope we have. Jesus has come that we might know the light and the high beauty of God. That's the mission of the Messiah. 
This is what we were created for. No other person, no other pseudo-Messiah, no other tiny little Savior can give you what Jesus offers you today. That's a living hope that we walk with. Are you walking in that freedom today? Are you walking with that future in mind, that, that living hope, that security? Um, I hope so. And for the answer, the answer for some of you might, might be no. Maybe even some of, the, some of you who have placed your faith in Jesus Christ, uh, you might not be walking. You wouldn't say, well, yeah, that's how I define my, my walk with the Lord, secure. Maybe, maybe, maybe you're in a season of, I, I know, but I'm, I've, been, I've had lots of seasons of where I've doubted and I've been insecure and I, I, I would think, man, but I'm just so disobedient. <laughs> I'm just so weak. In those seasons of doubting my relationship with the Lord, it almost always comes back to sin in my life. I would look at, my, I would look at myself and I'd say, God could never accept me. Day after day, time after time, I fall with the same stupid stuff. How could he ever forgive me for this? Surely God must insist that I have a better track record than what I've got. Anybody been there? I read this week that Mark Twain used to have nightmares of a big Bible that sat on his chest and it would crush him. There was a big Bible on his chest crushing him. Why, why do you think he'd have those nightmares? Read one, one, one commentator said, well, it's because he... He trusted in his obedience to the Bible rather than in the message of the Bible. It, the Bible crushed him because he was trusting in his obedience to the Bible rather than in the message of the Bible. And what is the message of the Bible? That Jesus is the Savior, not you. Your security is not found in what you can do, what you can conjure up, but in what Jesus has done. He lived the life we should have lived. He took the deaths that we should have died, and he offers eternal life to any who would receive it. Remember we said it, we said it last week, Jesus knows your, your he knows you by name. He knows your personal sheepness. He, he knows you personally and intimately. There is nothing that you can do that will surprise Jesus. I've, I've had people tell me in the past, tell me in my life, they'd say, man, uh, man, if my wife knew what went through my head, if, if, if this person, you know, knew, you know, my husband knew that my, the deepest, darkest secrets, they'd be packing their bags and running. In fact, if I could be honest, if you guys knew the battles that I face, and if you guys knew what goes on in my head, the, the, the thing, the darkness in my heart, you guys would never come. <laughs> as soon as Roxy's done singing, you'd be out. You'd be out of here. You would never sit through another one of my sermons. But here's the incredible thing. Jesus knows us by name. He knows us intimately. There are no dark corners that we're hiding anything from God. There's nothing that you can do to surprise God. And guess what? He's not packing his bags. He's not running. We can't surprise him. He says, I, I, I know you by name, and I still love you so much. I know, I know what you did yesterday, and I know what you're going to do tomorrow. And nothing that you can ever do will snatch you from my hand if you're, if you're part of my sheep, if you're part of my fold. This is the hope that he offers you and me today. Jesus is the Messiah who can save us from our past. He empowers us to live according to God's word today, and he gives us the hope of life in the future. He's the Messiah of history. Let me close with this final quote, and then we'll be done. This is C.S. Lewis begging his readers to give their lives to Christ. This is what he said in Mere Christianity. He wrote this. He said, Lose your life and you will save it. Submit to death. Death of your ambitions and favorite wishes and you will find eternal life. Keep back nothing. 
Nothing in you that has not died will ever be raised from the dead. Look for yourself, and you will find in the long run only hatred, loneliness, despair, rage, ruin, and decay. But look for Christ, and you will find him, and with him, everything else thrown in. Let's pray.